0: It's really my desire to plug into the theme that you're considering today in what I want to say to you. I think that's important because it's important to the aims of today, and so I want very much to, to do that with you. To, to live the reality of the kingdom is our great challenge, and uh, I suppose I'm asking the question today, what does it mean to live in this kingdom, the United Kingdom, and obviously, in the context of the European context, we, we all find ourselves in as children of God's kingdom. How do, how do kingdom values push through the culture that we find ourselves living in day by day? The environment that is the context and the scene of where we're living lives and, and how we're doing life as families, as individuals, as couples, in our workplaces, in our social lives. And they're important questions if we're to truly understand what living the reality of the kingdom means, we need to know where we're living the reality of the kingdom and how that affects us and how that challenges us. And my inspiration for what I want to say to you today comes out of the life of one of the great characters of the Old Testament, somebody who in my last summer as a church pastor before taking on this role, I explored with the church, that of the life of Daniel. And I'm sure that you, if you certainly grew up in church as I did in Sunday school, Daniel was one of those characters that we had wonderful stories about, about Kings having dreams of statues and and lions in dens and fiery furnaces and all the wonderful stories of Daniel. But essentially, Daniel and his three Hebrew friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, were, were forced to live in a foreign culture, a culture that was so distinctly different to their Hebrew origins. And it wasn't foreign merely because it was another country, Babylon, another location, another climate, another kind of food, another kind of language. It was foreign because of the values, the belief system that was inherent within that setting that Daniel and his friends found themselves in. Most specifically, it was an anti-Hebrew culture. It was a culture where the Hebrews that were there were there not because they volunteered to be there, It wasn't because they'd watched location, location, location and decided that Babylon and its gardens were a good place to move to. They had been forcibly removed from their homeland and taken into captivity, which lasted, as you know, for 70 years in a foreign land. There were aggressive opponents of all that they stood for as an ancient people. And these opponents sought any opportunity to discredit the value system of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and the Hebrew people there, the value system that was their upbringing. It was really helpful for me to be able to sit and, and listen and be inspired by Bruce's message this morning as, as I think that there is a point of connection which when you're a guest is always wonderful to feel that maybe you might just be on some similar tracks with those that are speaking. Because as Bruce represented that there is a shift, there is a a deliberate attempt to undermine a culture that we've known. I think the reality is, friends, that, that Christendom as we've known it evaporated some time ago. The Christendom of our ancestors, and I'm fourth generation follower of Jesus and my I can chase my roots back to my my mum's great aunt in Wales, who was a compatriot of George Jeffreys, but the Christendom of their day is radically different to where we find ourselves today. We're in a completely different landscape, and it's that that I want to address and consider how we kingdom people live in such a kingdom landscape. This opposition of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was deliberately attempt to remove them from influence. There were concerted efforts to steal away from them the influence that God had favoured them with. And some would say that that is an effect of what is happening in our nation today. That there is a desire to steal away from the church the influence that we have known. Maybe we have to ask ourselves if we've actually used it less than we should have done in generations past. Maybe we need to ask ourselves if God favours us continually with moments of influence, how we use that for the reality of extending God's kingdom into our culture and our environment. One of the greatest challenges I think that they faced in Babylon was the spiritual environment that surrounded them. The material environment wasn't particularly unusual. I have had the privilege of travelling to different parts of the world, and um, I, I'm not certainly an avid traveller. I'm not one of those people who gets a buzz out of constant travelling. But it's been a privilege to see other parts of the world, and and some of them I've particularly liked the atmosphere, the climate. Who wouldn't like more sunshine than we get? Some have a wonderfully relaxed environment, but I've been to some places that there was an atmosphere I couldn't quantify. It wasn't empirical. It wasn't something I could evidence. But as a follower, as a kingdom person, I sensed an atmosphere I didn't feel at home in. And you may well know what that feels like. And I think that's what Daniel and his friends experienced. It would have been so different different from their early years in Jerusalem. The presence of witchcraft and idolatry was rife in Babylon. Religiously, Babylon had a a pantheon of maybe as much as two and a half thousand gods with a small g. And into that you throw that you find in Nebuchadnezzar's quarters, we'll read in just a couple of moments, the, the presence there of magicians and enchanters, astrologers and sorcerers. And what is a shocking thought for me or was a shocking thought for me as over the summer I explored more of the Daniel story was the possibility that Daniel and his friends were even forced into teaching in these environments. Maybe they were educated forcibly in the nature of these dark arts and doctrines. And there's so much in the account of Daniel that that is a parallel, I think, for us in our contemporary culture of the challenges we face. So I want to explore with you this morning, how is it that we live a kingdom culture in this kind of culture that we face today? My premise is this. It is a greater opportunity than it is a challenge. And I think we must start from that position that this is our moment and our opportunity. And the times when the church has bemoaned our environment and the the culture that we find ourselves in, we, we need to put those to bed and thank God for the opportunity and turn the focus, the mentality of our hearts to say, God, what a season, what a moment, what a potential harvest as we find ourselves in this culture. And so let me ask you to turn with me to the book of Daniel, and I, I want to read just 13 verses to you. I'm sadly finding myself of the age where, unless I bring a Bible the size of my car to the platform, I need to wear my glasses. <laughs> the only consolation is I think it makes me look slightly more intelligent than I know I am. Can I read from Daniel chapter 2, please? Just the first 13 verses, much of what I want to share in the moments that I have this morning is from the whole of the chapter, but I think that these first few verses set the context. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. One night during the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had such disturbing dreams that he couldn't sleep. He called in his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers. And he demanded that they tell him what he had dreamed. As they stood before the king, he said, I've had a dream that deeply troubles me, and I must know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, Long live the king. That's a little bit of syncophatic behavior going on there. Tell us the dream, and we will tell you what it means. But the king said to his astrologers, I am serious about this. If you don't tell me what my dream was and what it means, you'll be torn limb from limb and your houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. But if you tell me what I dreamed and what the dream means, I will give you many wonderful gifts and honors. Just tell me the dream and what it means." They said again, please, your majesty, tell us the dream and we will tell you what it means. And the king replied, I know what you're doing. You're stalling for time because you know I'm serious when I say, if you don't tell me the dream, you're doomed. So you've conspired to tell me lies, hoping I'll change my mind, but tell me the dream and then I'll know that you can tell me what it means. And the astrologers replied to the king, no one on earth can tell the king his dream. And no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing from any magician, enchanter, or astrologer. The king's demand is impossible. No one except the gods can tell you your dream, and they do not live here among people." The king was furious when he heard this. This There's quite a confession there, isn't there, folks? The king was furious when he heard this, and he ordered that all the wise men of Babylon be executed. And because of the king's decree, men were sent to find and kill Daniel and his friends. You know, Nebuchadnezzar was highly disturbed by his dream, or dreams, as my text says, which may suggest to us it was a recurring dream. One dream that's difficult is bad enough. But when you can't rest night after night after night, it becomes all the more compellingly difficult. He desperately wanted relief from it, but he wanted to know the mystery of what it actually meant. He was worried about the future of his kingdom. How long would Babylon the great last? How long would he be in power? It weighed heavily on his mind because though he didn't understand the detail of the dream, there was something in the experience that suggested to him that maybe his kingdom, his rule, his command, wasn't going to last that long. It's a little bit like that line in in Shakespeare's Henry IV. You know, uneasy lies the head that wears a crown and how many great rulers have worried about how long their empires their kingdom would last how many powerful men have been driven to near insanity because of the need to retain their power their position how much does our culture struggle to retain its supremacy what will our culture do to maintain its place of supremacy What will the new atheists do to try to tell us that we are intellectually bereft because we believe in a creation, in an order that was designed by the most magnificent mind that we can't begin to compare with? How much do the morality of our culture challenge the very foundation of what we believe and want to subverse the values that we believe bring wholeness to the human nature? Uneasy lies the head that wears a crown. And Nebuchadnezzar called for the magicians and the enchanters, and they had a collection of code books in Babylon that they would use to decipher dreams. And their strategy, their process, would be that somebody would share a dream, and they would go to their code books, to their ancient scripts, to what had previously deciphered dreams, and they would use those books to try to find the meaning for the dreams. But Nebuchadnezzar knew his system was faulty. He knew there was fallacy and inaccuracy in the way that things happened. He knew that that he could be fooled and duped by those who said they had such great wisdom. I I don't consider myself to be a particularly bright type of chap. I, I wouldn't feel comfortable in a group of college or university professors as much as others might. But I'm not stupid. And there's a difference. I don't know if you're like me, I find myself listening sometimes to conversations on the TV and think, is it just me or does this not make sense? And I think that there's a foolishness in our world today, in the culture that we live in, where people are being duped. I sometimes feel in life that one of my roles in life, I'm a little like the the guy in the fairy tale who sees the king riding by with no clothes on, and everybody else says how gloriously he's clothed, and I feel like the guy saying, am I the only one that's seeing it? Because when you have a kingdom perspective, you see things that those who are not part of the kingdom cannot see. And you think you're daft, but you're wise in kingdom things. And Nebuchadnezzar knew the system was flawed and he was determined that he was not going to be duped and he makes quite a confession you saw it there or or, or excuse me his enchanters make quite a confession that the gods don't live with men And what is the Christian message? God in us, the hope of glory. Jesus said that the Spirit will be with you and will live in you. That's the reality of being kingdom people. Our God is with us. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Where two or three gather in my name, I am there among them. Jesus said to the disciples, it's good for you that I go away. And I can imagine the disciples saying, well, how on earth, Jesus, is that possible? How could it be good that you go away. But Jesus knew the omnipresence of the Spirit in every believer's life, the seal, the guarantee of salvation. But the residing presence and power and wisdom of God in every believer is the glue of the kingdom. And we see so much in Nebuchadnezzar's fear that I think is representative of fear in our society. I think there are many people who realise it's not working. It's our opportunity. But there have always been those things that people have been curious about that we deem as spiritual. There have always been the search in people's heart for an understanding of the mysteries that echo around their soul. This is particularly an uncomfortable weekend for us, isn't it, as Christians? On the one hand, Pastor Colin is right, we get an extra hour in bed, but on the other hand, we have to put up with the nonsense of Halloween. My wife is an avid fan of Strictly Come Dancing apart from one Saturday every year today. Because there is this sense in which we're being duped. The enemy prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone he may devour. He masquerades as an angel of light. Satan's greatest strategies have been to, to either convince people he doesn't exist or that he's just some cartoon caricature that they can dress up like. And Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego and Daniel find themselves in a, in a culture that was occult-driven. There are many who experience disturbing things and delve into dangerous places in our world today. Digital TV channels offer a range of spurious and mystical programming like ghost hunting shows and celebrity clairvoyance. This is not entertainment, this is trespassing on land that was not designed for the human soul. And we wonder why there is such a brokenness so often at the heart of our culture and our society, and we don't know the half. And that's the most frightening thought. And friends, that is the reality that Daniel and his friends found themselves in. But there are such parallels for you and I of the reality we find ourselves in, the reality of what the kingdom needs to push through in the kingdom of God. And there's a couple of things I want to highlight that I think were Daniel's responses to this that I'm hoping that you and I can grab hold of today and, and allow to be an impetus for our lives. And the first is Daniel's devotion, He responded in such moments with devotion. When the threat came to him and his friends, even though they weren't part of the court that were trying to figure out how on earth could they interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he was one of that group known as the wise men, the group of counsel. He was in that group who were all going to have themselves done in by Nebuchadnezzar because his dream couldn't be interpreted. The fakery of the king's advisors had been exposed and he was angry and if you look further in the passage and I read you'd see in verses 17 to 19 Daniel's response is this then Daniel returned to his house and explained to his friends the Babylonian names here Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. What was Daniel's response? He went before God, and what was the outcome? During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. His response to the cultural challenge was intercession. His response was to dig deep into the devotion he had to God that he'd had since a little boy. We don't know what age he was when he was taken into captivity. And there are some things that can only ever be understood by discovering the wisdom of God in the place of prayer. And I was so encouraged by Bruce's words this morning to remind us of our role as priests, as intercessors, as those who bridge the gap, as it were, between the kingdom that is here and the kingdom that is coming and what we find ourselves in. And kingdom people understand the devotion that is necessary to reveal the wisdom of God. And we can generate energy and enthusiasm in our churches for lots of different things, but quite often the things that really matter are the things we struggle to generate that enthusiasm for, that energy. And there's something about Daniel's life and his devotion that saved the day. Because he goes before God and he pleads with his friends, let's get our prayer quartet together. Let's go before God. Did you notice it says that during the night, he didn't even sleep on this. He prays and he's praying through the night and he's, he's seeking after God because his life is in danger. There's a sense of seriousness about it. And devotion to God connected with the seriousness of the environment can bring about a revelation of God's heart and his wisdom And there was a deep effect that flowed from the devotion that Daniel and his friends had because the incident brought Daniel to the attention of Nebuchadnezzar and it gave him opportunity. Verse 27 and 28, Daniel talks to the king as he he begins to prepare to share the revelation he's had and he said, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he's asked about, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And I think we as the church need to remind ourselves, God is not hiding it from us, he's hiding it for us. Because we are the vehicle for the expression of the wisdom of God into the world. It is our opportunity when there seems to be no answer and there seems to be no way that kingdom people know what it is from the place of devotion to bring the wisdom of God into situations. You can do that in your workplace. Things that others might think are your training, your experience, your personality, moments when you're somehow bringing a sense of the wisdom of God into situations. We're not just called to be kingdom people in church. We're called to be kingdom people in the city, in the nation, in the continent. And here Daniel speaks the wisdom of God because kingdom living calls us to be men and women of the spirit. And as we reflect into the New Testament and into what that tells us, we go into the teachings of Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, where he tells us that the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have received what, excuse me, what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us, and that is what we speak. Not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. There is a place for us as kingdom people in our devotion to God to be the vehicle of the Spirit speaking the wisdom of God. The remarkable way in which we, impure vessels though we are, can somehow be a mouthpiece for God. And That's the kingdom coming into our situations because wisdom flows to those who stay close to the Spirit. It really is amazing if you stay close to the Spirit, what God can do with you. It was never designed to be too difficult for us. But we're the ones that sometimes complicate it. with the pursuit of so many things, and God wants us close to the Spirit. Because the strange thing is that though we have the Spirit residing within us, we can live distant from His influence and His voice. I've made a discovery, my family think I'm going deaf. And they tell me that when I talk on my phone in a coffee shop, I talk very loudly. And that when I watch the football on TV, I have it far too loud. They play this little game with me, my kids do. Aren't kids cruel sometimes? And we're driving along as a family and they'll go, Dad. And they'll whisper very quietly, Dad. And they keep incrementally increasing the volume until I hear it. And then it creates great laughter when they've been doing it for three minutes and I say, yes. And I am, I suppose, finding myself a little hard of hearing. But I don't want to be a man who the older I get, the harder I find it to hear God. In fact, quite the opposite. I want to be a man who knows what it is to hear the voice of the Spirit because everything he says is pure truth pure wisdom, pure revelation from the heart of God. Kingdom people need to listen to the Spirit. These are the realities that will make a difference for us. Proverbs tells in Proverbs 2.12 that wisdom will save you from evil people, from those whose words are twisted. You know that in the early part of the book of Proverbs, there's Solomon the writer is encouraging us to pursue wisdom, to gain wisdom at all costs We must have wisdom. We find the New Testament writers encourage us, Paul's writing encourages us, that we might, he prays that we might know God better through the spirit of what? Wisdom and revelation in Ephesians chapter 1. And the wisdom of God is what we need to live in this threatening and alien culture. Life by the Spirit is our response to the inauthenticity and counterfeit dimensions of the world we live in and my urging to you today as people of God is in our pursuit of many things however spiritual they may seem never forget the place of devotion and the power of what flows from that altar that we heard about earlier where the blood is sufficient to cover all of our failure and the basis of faith in Jesus Christ Another thing I I think that Daniel expresses to us, I want to encourage you in, is that of awareness. Because this account really reveals the underlying reality of life in this world today. And that is that there are many, many nations, but only two kingdoms. The kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And I take, again, I take the verse that Bruce used earlier from 1 Peter 2, verse 9. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy people, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who brought you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's an awareness that Daniel had. It wasn't about Babylon, and it wasn't really about Jerusalem. It was about the kingdom of God. And there are many nations represented here as there are in churches right across our land. And we praise God for that. But we're either part of one kingdom or another. That's the simple reality of life in our world. And Nebuchadnezzar's dream is very significant because as you know, it foretells four great kingdoms that would come. It's this dream of a statue. And it's made of varying items from from gold all the way down to clay. And as you know, in the story, the Bible tells us in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 34, that, that while you were watching, Daniel says, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. And it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. And that rock that Daniel saw is the kingdom of God that comes with the arrival, the incarnation of Christ when Jesus declares the kingdom of God is among you. And goes on to declare, Luke tells us the kingdom of God is within you, that the coming of Christ is the great conflict of these earthly kingdoms that seem to have such great significance. Alexander the Great never expected to be overthrown. I was watching a documentary just this week on the life of Hitler and the sheer horror of that megalomaniac who was trying to build this third right kingdom and, and take over Europe and it didn't last long. Because no kingdom can stand in the face of the rock that was cut out, not by human hands, but by the purposes of God and thrust into the environment of the world. And kingdoms have come and kingdoms have gone and names that our children simply learn in history lessons are no more than scratches on sepulchres. But today, the kingdom of God advances in the world. The rock that is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And in verse 44 of that same chapter, Daniel says, in, those, in, the, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. And this is what I want you to be aware of today, people of God that our worldview must be defined through the truth of the kingdom of God. This is the lens through which I see the world. It's prophetic revelations of what is to come. And while in our Bible study classes, we could get caught up with the the details of when, how, where, and what might happen, what we all know and what we all believe is the kingdom that is here is coming in greater power and dimension, that the king is coming again. And that is the awareness. And Daniel lived in Babylon, not suppressed by the pressure of an atmosphere that everybody else felt the weight under. And his friends refused to bow to a statue that Nebuchadnezzar set up of himself and were thrown into a furnace, but the kingdom was with them in the furnace. Another man in the furnace because whatever environment we find ourselves thrust into, when we stand and refuse to bow, the king of the kingdom is always with us. That's Daniel's story. The great message of Daniel, God's in control. And that's what kingdom people need to remember that the kingdom is here, that the rule and government of God over all things is expressed in his church through Christ who is the head. Nebuchadnezzar would lose his throne. Two other kings would come and go before Daniel would announce the end of the exile. And do you know how he knew the exile was coming to an end? He was reading the scriptures. He was reading the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah. And he could count. And he knew how long he'd been there. And when we arrive at the easier part of Daniel, before we get into chapter six and onwards, really, the, which is the tough part, we find an old man who is anticipating the end of the exile. He never lost sight of the kingdom and who he was serving whilst in that environment. And Daniel's interpretation of the dream revealed how every earthly kingdom is temporary, folks. We are a very short walk from the seat of power in our nation. We have seen things in the last 12 months politically in our nation we didn't imagine we might see. Aside from the recent referendum, we have seen prime ministers suddenly go and other ones come and party political intrigue and all kinds of things. And all that goes to tell us is that human kingdoms are temporary and we feel for our friends in America at the moment and we need to pray for them this next 10 days or so seems that's a confusion but what we know is kings and presidents and prime ministers and dictators and oligarchs they come and they go but the kingdom of God lasts forever that's the awareness that's what kingdom people know that's the reality we're living in today So John can write in his great revelation, I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens. It has come at last. Salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ for the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth. The one who accuses them before our God day and night. And they have defeated him by the blood of the lamb and by their testimony And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Kingdom awareness. Knowing who the king is. Knowing that the king will outlive any other empire. And there's one more thing I want to share. I think that was so symptomatic of Daniel's response in this environment, that was confidence. There is a quiet yet firm confidence that comes from knowing We are partners in God's kingdom. In the latter part of chapter 2, verses 46 to 47, we read this, when Daniel finished, listen to these words, friends, King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face in awe before Daniel. He ordered the offering of sacrifices and burning of incense in Daniel's honour. He said to Daniel, your God is beyond question, the God capital G in the text, of all God's nice little G there. The master, capital M, of all kings, little K. And he solves all mysteries, I know, because you solve this mystery. You know, the one person of influence throughout three or four different rulers in the book of Daniel is Daniel. This man taken from Jerusalem, from Jerusalem, a land that was attacked and taken into captivity, he is the great influence from one king to the next. And every attempt to undermine him, every time when he opened the windows and prayed, when he was told he couldn't pray, every time he kept his devotion, he kept living under the power of the king of the great kingdom, he could have a confidence. And I believe the church can learn from that confidence As I said earlier, I think we need to see these are days of opportunity. And by that, we don't don't dismiss the the difficulty of what it is to live in our world today and in the UK and Europe and across the world. But we can have a confidence because we're kingdom people. Because our hearts are set on something higher. Paul writes to the Colossians said, Don't set your minds on earthly things, but set your minds above. I love how Paul writes at the end of 2 Corinthians 4, these things that we see around us they're just temporary don't fix your eyes on these things they're temporary but fix your eyes on what is unseen for what is seen is temporary but what is unseen is eternal and kingdom people gain a confidence from knowing that the unseen is more real than the seen that we live in this three-dimensional world And we're so affected by depth and breadth and height and the tangible empirical evidence of what we touch and smell and taste and hear. But the kingdom of God is a sense beyond that. It's an awareness that God has a plan in his world. And I live with this strong confidence and conviction that God will have his way. And we have to live in the pressure of the environment that would shift our thinking for that. I don't know why the suffering in Aleppo in Syria is happening. It, it's painstaking. It's awful to see it happening. I don't have an answer, but I know that the king of the kingdom is just and true and righteous and has a plan for mankind. And he sets a plan in place, as Bruce so eloquently explained to us, a plan of salvation that through the blood of his son, the human heart could be changed. And that's the problem in our world today. Jeremiah told us all those years ago that the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? That the condition of our world is as a result of the human heart. C.S. Lewis wrote in The Problem of Pain that almost four-fifths of human suffering is caused from one person to another. And we know that that's the environment of the world we're living in, but we can have a confidence that God is just and true. And there are a number of things I want to suggest to you we could be confident in. We could be confident in our identity as God's people. We do not need to run or hide from this challenge, but embrace it with a confidence in God. Some of us have journeyed a long way to being able to understand today that we're children of God. And what that means. And that the the healing of our souls from all kinds of things that would cause us to feel insecure. But to be confident as children of God. That's why John writes in 1 John 3.1. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us. That we should be called the children of God. For that is who we are. And whoever has this hope in his soul purifies himself. The confidence of who we are in Christ. And that is an important journey we must go on to know that the issues of the kingdom, the world that we live in, do not have to dominate and dictate our lives as children of God. We have been given the opportunity for freedom. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Do not allow yourself again to be enslaved by a yoke of slavery. He who the sun sets free, say it with me, is free indeed confidence in our identity. We're here for a reason, folks. The kingdom of God here, because He is without comparison far greater than any other ideology, philosophy, mysticism, or dark spiritual world. I want to suggest to you we can have confidence in the authenticity of our message and our lifestyle. It works. I was thinking as Bruce was talking, and he he, like all good preachers do, they sometimes use physical demonstration and he turned to the altar and, and that motion. And I was just thinking about how the message of the blood of Jesus is one that we're encouraged to find other vocabulary for. But I want to say to you today, the message works. It's true today that the blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin. That's what John says in 1 John 1:7. If we have fellowship with him, then we, are, we know if we have fellowship with him, Then the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses from all sin. The message has not changed. And the life we're called to does not need to change. This works. How do I know it works? Because I'm looking at a group of people who are just a small fraction of the church in the city and the church in the nation. I'm looking at people today who would say, this message works. It's ancient yet true. It's only ancient because it doesn't need to change we should never be ashamed of the gospel because, as we said earlier, it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. I want to encourage you to be confident in the message that we have because there's something that happens when the Spirit is at work with us in representing the message of the kingdom to others that what they cannot conceive of naturally, the Spirit is at work. I never got anybody saved. It was the Spirit I can't save a single person. I can do my best. I can sit in my study and work my hardest to find the best, most eloquent way of explaining the gospel. But you know, nobody gets saved because I preach it well. They get saved because the Spirit touches their heart. They're drawn by the Spirit. He's doing far more than we're ever doing. But kingdom people are confident in the message and say, I'll work with the Spirit. And you may not be confident in you. And that's not a bad place to be. But be confident in the spirit. Be confident in the message. Know this message of the kingdom works. Mark 1, 1. Jesus came preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And then he releases, as we've heard this morning, the opportunity, the privilege of ministering the kingdom. But I also want to suggest to you that we can be confident in the supernatural wisdom and power of God. Being a prophetic people is more than the importance of prophetic words in our cell groups and in our church settings, and they are incredibly valuable. Being a prophetic people is carrying a wisdom that is beyond natural. Being a prophetic people is having an understanding and an awareness and an insight, a perception and a perspective of the world we're in that is focused around the King and His purposes. And into that God speaks, and through that God speaks. And some of us are far more prophetic than we give ourselves credit for. We have pigeonholed prophetic ministry to, to those who God has greatly used with insight in so many different ways and not seeing that when the wisdom of God flows through us, we are seeing the world as God wants to see it, wants us to see it. Because the problem is we're so often seeing the world as they want us to see them through the eyes of advertising and the media and the you must have culture And the go down Regent Street or Bond Street or go down the the latest place where you can get the latest things that will make you feel that you're up to date and get the iPhone 7, whatever you do, because you're nobody unless you've got an iPhone 7. And I'm just, I'm one generation behind already, so I haven't got a chance. But no, we, we have a different view of life. That the things that other people build their life around are the passing things of our world because a prophetic people have a confidence in the supernatural wisdom of God. I somehow want to see as God sees because it's a fearless view of the world. And it's very difficult to look at our world in the natural and not fear. I have children. One just got married. I know I don't look old enough. I have a daughter who's coming up to 16. I've had two sons. I have a very different view of the world for my daughter than I did of my sons. It's quite remarkable how I find that. But when I look through the lens of the kingdom, it is a fearless view because I live under the sovereignty of a king. Daniel summarizes it all for us that there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And I want to suggest to you today, God is looking for a people who will understand the times they live in, but who will live confidently with a kingdom mindset, with the knowledge God is at work. Do you know he's at work today? I want to say to some of you, he's at work in your life. That he works together all things for good to those who accord according to his purposes. He's working things together unfortunately so often the uk church is hindered by only seeing the uk church and our perspective of what god is doing in his world is limiting being limited by our perspective of the environment that we see and god is looking for a people with a perception that is being empowered by the spirit to speak the wisdom and truth of god into the environment we're in I found Daniel such an inspiration for my own life and my own understanding over these recent months to realise that we were called to thrive, whatever the culture. And I'm inspired when I read of the church across the world and believers who are seeing the outpouring of God's power and his wisdom in environments that you and I would fear to even tread in, if we're really honest. Because the kingdom comes in power when people plug in to all that the king is.